being offensive by accident because that's the worst when you you don't mean anything by it but then you show up and you're like oh no the way I'm using this movement or the, the kind of dance I'm doing to this rhythm is I I'm just doing it because I think it's fun and and someone else is offended that's a terrible feeling none of us really want to do that none of us are trying to create harm through our art <laughs> Whether you're a professional dancer or just started falling in love with ballet dance, welcome to the Ballet Dance Live podcast. Here, we are diving deep into all facets of ballet dance world that cannot be found in a workshop or an audience seat. Every week, you will find new, honest, thought-provoking, inspiring, and educational conversation with top leading professionals of our industry. I'm your host, Jana Komornitska, and I'm honored that you are part of our dance tribe. This episode is brought to you by the Jana Dance Club, online platform where you can get access to all my teaching materials at once. Hundreds of technique drills, multiple choreographies, themed intensives, full-length courses, Everything you can think about, whether 20 minutes or few hours for practice, you will find a program that will fit not only your schedule, but your mood as well. First seven days are free, so check it out at yanadanceclub.com, link in the show notes. Hello, dear dancers, welcome to the Belly Dance Live podcast, it's a new episode and a new guest and a new conversation and a new portion of inspiration. But before we dive into all this, I would like to pause and reflect a little bit more on the previous episode that I released, the previous episode about fears of performances. And your reaction, your feedback really impressed me. First of all, I got so surprised by the number even of downloads. They skyrocketed and it's now one of the most listened episodes uh, um, in the 10 of most listened episodes ever released in just one week. So I can feel how much important and uh, essential the topic itself is and we all deal with performance anxieties panics uh, nervousness that not all of us know how to transform that nervousness into excitement so i just realized how important this topic is and of course the topic is much bigger than just one conversation as you know the previous episode was a part of the lecture one of the lecture of the intensive which i added to my educational platform yana dance club and uh, that was a three-week program and even on that there was two conflicting uh, messages that I was receiving afterwards from uh, participants actually they're not conflicting but they were contrasting on one hand very positive feedback about breakthroughs that they did and on another side so many wishes that this intensive would have been longer or added something else like more intensive but even with that uh, three-week work I know many of the members of the club did great uh, discoveries and realizations and I just want to share with you a couple of feedback that I received from the intensive uh, participants this intensive exceeded my expectations I don't often do mindset work in my regular training, but this experience made me realize how important it is to carefully examine what energies and characteristics we are portraying. 
Best of all was facing my fears. In fact, I realized that it is part of me and it is there to make me stronger. I can now apply the strategies from the intensive to work through other fears and anxieties and bring into life other characters I admire. I know I have more work to do myself, but I feel like I have tools to dive deeper and so many more like this. And I know even for you listeners of the podcast, even from listening to the previous episode and having some thoughts to think about and let's say meditate about already had uh, some shifts in your mindsets and your approach to that performance fears and anxiety problems. But of course, if you want to dig deeper, I can't skip or ignore this topic, but do recommend to take a look at the actual intensive because I also added a couple of practical exercises and there we are facing not only one side of the matter, let's say, of on our fears, but also look on other part of the equation, which is creating energies and owning the space and breaking through these paralyzing fears, but stating like, no, this is our space, we are performers, we control the energy and how we can deliver it. So I will leave a link about this intensive in the show notes for the description of this episode, but you can also go to the yanadanceclub.com and research more in the tab intensives and look. And also want to remind that there is a seven-day free trial. So if you just want to glance and see what's exactly there and how it may apply or serve your dance training, go ahead and check it out. And then I really hope it will help you to push through all those limiting blocks and limiting beliefs that we carry often ourselves. And yes, performance anxiety and fears and panic, they go away with time and practice and they will get better, but you can also do some work and some exercises to make sure that this time of practice is a little bit shorter than just a natural flow of uh, things going on. On a completely different note, I am extremely excited to introduce our today's guest, world-known, one of the pioneers in the field of tribal fusion ballet dance, Sharon Kihara. I'm pretty sure you heard this name, if not from her solo dance activities and career, but also from her participation in ballet dance superstars and ballet dance evolution, because Sharon is in the rare position of being the only tribal dancer to have been featured as principal dancer in two of the world's most famous international touring ballet dance companies. Also, she is a dance and yoga therapy teacher and she is certified by Yoga Alliance. In this episode, we talked uh, about so many different things, starting from the beginning of Sharon's dance journey and that was not a very traditional or typical one. I'm pretty sure it would be very exciting to hear about uh, her personality and how it got her involved in dance activities. We talked about discipline, focus, but also neurodivergency and how it went together or how it influenced two different study directions, like studying in school and studying dance, <laughs> for instance. 
Also, we talked about her transition into tribal fusion, and actually, she was one of the pioneers at the origins of this style. So, how this style actually was created and how it evolved, also trying to compare the evolution since the very beginning to these days, if there is any comparisons or differences in modern style and the very beginnings of this um, dance form. And we talked a lot about educational basics for well-rounded tribal fusion dancers, what exactly you need to learn and to study. And this will be useful not only for tribal fusion dancers, but for dancers in general to think about cultural awareness as well as how to bring their training to the next level. And also, of course, I couldn't keep the topic of uh, Sharon's retirement and her transitioning from the dance career, from the very active dance career. For so many years, she was touring non-stop with two huge companies and suddenly now completely different lifestyle. And how was the transition? Why that transition happened at all? And uh, I'm very happy and grateful for our today's guest to be so open and um, so willing to share her deep experience and I'm absolutely sure it will inspire many of you. So on this note, let's dive in. Hello dear Sharon and welcome to the Belly Dance Live podcast. I am so really excited to have you and it's such an honor to have you as our guest. So thank you so much for uh, sharing your time and spending it today with us. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to talk to you. Definitely. It's been a while since I've talked about belly dance with anyone. So here we go. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a very exciting conversation. And there's so many things that you did and your dance journey is so rich and exciting. But... I would love to start from the very beginning. I know that you, mm -hmm. at the age of 13, you were already performing ballet dance. So how did you stumble on it at the very first time? Do you remember that moment? Was it a performance, a class, a poster, I don't know, TV? Or how did you, let's say, saw ballet dance, discovered ballet dance, and then decided, like, I want to do it? Yeah, that's a good question. So I do have a moment. Um, it was a really magical moment for me. I think I was maybe 10 years old. I think I was in grade five. I was in fifth grade, so elementary school. And there's a big uh, festival kind of near where I grew up. So I guess you it's, it's a hippie festival, really. It's like a big kind of psychedelic hippie festival that happens in the woods. And it was started by kind of a... Have you heard of Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters? Do you know who those people are? Kind of some... Uh, Not that much aware. Psychedelic. Yeah, you can... It's a fun Google. It's a weird part of American history, but um, some kind of psychedelic, hippie, experimental thought people um, were part of starting this kind of festival um, just to set the environment and ambiance for you. So it's a really crazy kind of circusy place. And there is a stage devoted to Middle Eastern music and dance. And I got to just go as a spectator when I was a child and go see dancers perform. And um, the first dancers I ever saw were like Aziza from Canada, if you know Aziza, the Oriental dancer. And she's incredible. She's like world class. 
So I saw her and I was like, oh my God, it was a, you know, when you, when you're a little kid and you have those connective moments where you're like, oh, I relate to that. Or that's what I want to be just like that. (laughs) You have your, your hero moment. So that happened for me with Aziza, um, which is funny because I grew up and we became friends and now like we would both perform on that stage together um, recently. So that's kind of a funny, like little moment I always felt like you know some children have heroes like Madonna or you know Britney Spears or whatever but most of us don't get to grow up and like become friends with our heroes and I totally got to do that so that was like a huge like privilege and um, funny story but yeah I was really young and I just saw this style of dance and I loved the music and I grew up dancing with like ballet classical contemporary jazz tap all those kinds of things from age like two or three but yeah belly dance had something really special I'd never seen anything like it so it made a big impression on me when I was young. Since you were dancing uh, starting from such an early age did you mm-hmm. always yeah, consider yeah did you always consider dance as your future profession or you you had kind of different <laughs> thoughts of different paths in life <laughs> oh definitely different uh yeah no i never considered that i would be able to be a professional dancer i think a big part of that came from starting in classical dance and ballet and i had kind of strict teachers my early teachers were actually I think a Russian school <laughs> so if you I don't know if you studied uh, Russian ballet as a yes. child you know it can, can be brutal <laughs> yes can be, uh, really <laughs> hardcore and I think I I enjoyed um, I remember enjoying the discipline and the expectation that we would behave almost like adults that was kind of a fun game for me as a little kid I loved pretending to be an adult Um, when I was very small, I didn't really enjoy spending time with other children. I thought they were weird. I'm like, they cry a lot. I don't understand. They can't talk. It's very weird. And I thought adults were really cool. So to be um, treated like a small adult was was great. But um, also, they were very honest. And, you know, I, I grew up hearing that my body was incorrect. My body was wrong. Uh, my torso was too long. I was too big. Um, I was too, you know, thick and large to really be a ballet body type. So I guess early those dreams got a little bit crushed Mm. and the expectation wasn't there that a dance career was possible. Even through university, I I kind of understood that a dance career wasn't really a possibility for me. Um, So I thought that maybe I would become a physical therapist, do physiotherapy, or some kind of dance therapeutics, um, something to involve dance. But no, I've, my degrees, I have three unfinished degrees, and one was in political science, one was in choreography and kinesiology. And it's just like, short answer, no, it didn't seem possible. Um, it happened really by accident for me. And that was, that's a funny, that's just kind of a weird uh, chain of events as well, too. Like, it wasn't something planned. And for your degrees, uh, where like all three of them, did you start them right after, let's say, school or is three degrees throughout your life? Well, um, so I have, (laughs) I'll just be honest with you. It's funny. I don't actually discuss this very much uh, in public, but 
I was, I had a really weird um, experience with school when I was young. So I never went to high school. What do you call high school in Ukraine? I know in Germany it's called gymnasium. We usually typically use like just the school and then like the higher grades, let's say, uh, like mm-hmm. more graduation yeah, grades. Grade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I went to a really interesting middle school. So this is for ages like 11, 12, 13. It was um, in retrospect, when I think back, it was actually a bit of a revolutionary curriculum. We studied a lot of interesting things concepts of death and dying in other cultures. Um, there was a large emphasis on learning who you are and wh- who you want to be in the world. It was really kind of an interesting school. It was a public school, but they encouraged us to think differently um, than most public schools would. It was very creative and very, um, it was really cool. It was a great environment for me to be in. And then I started upper levels high school and I hated it. So I quit and I, I stopped going to school when I was 14. And for two years, I just traveled by myself or with friends around the United States, a little bit in Mexico. Um, and I just like hitchhiked and would ride freight trains, like not passenger trains, big cargo trains that you have to be a little bit sneaky and jump on and jump off in the dark and I did this for like two years oh, wow. <laughs> and lived this kind of transient life. Yeah, it was a little bit strange, but um, this was the 90s. So I guess we didn't realize how dangerous things were. Um, and it wasn't. I felt very uh, in control of myself the entire time, which was a really great experience. So I did that ages 14 and 15. And when I turned 16, I got my high school equivalency degree and started college right away at 16, but I couldn't stay focused on school. It was really difficult for me to concentrate and finish. Also here in the States, school is uh, uh, very expensive. We don't really have much for socialized education here. It's kind of a problem. So every time I quit school and stopped university or college, uh, usually it was because I didn't have enough money to continue. So I would stop and get a job and work somewhere and, and come back but usually enough time would um, elapse in between stints in school that I would completely change my mind about what I wanted to study. Um, hence the unfinished degrees. I would do one thing for a while, get tired of it, do something else. But the one consistent thing I always wanted to do was dance. That's the only thing I would always want to come back to. Yeah, just the reason why I asked it, because among three of your degrees, you mentioned choreography and kinesiology, which is about dance and physical activity, but also suddenly like political science. So I was like, okay, maybe you were, I don't know, planning first to be a diplomat or politician, and then later in life changed, like, no, I want to be a dancer. But uh, that's interesting yeah, well, and exciting know. story. <laughs> That's kind of funny with the political science. I think that's also being a 16-year-old who really valued uh, and, and I had a very anarchistic approach to everything. And I thought that the, the best use of my time could be to try to um, become, you know, involved in politics and then somehow destroy the capitalist system from the inside. And then I realized like, ah, that sounds terrible. What a horrible way to <laughs> spend my time. <laughs> I, I don't know. 
you know, when you're young and you think you can just like completely fix the world and overhaul the horrible systems that exist in your place, in your country or your city or whatever. And yeah, at a certain point, I think I was like, oh, no, I'd rather dance. <laughs> I'll do it with dance instead. Or yeah. it's, I think at a certain point, you also realize that you have to enjoy what you do. And I'm sure a lot, a lot of people do enjoy various things, but dance was my big enjoyment so I decided to put more energy there I guess mm. well you can also put it the way by improving your life you improve uh, life on the planet in general a little bit too <laughs> if you can take Maybe. care of our joy and our happiness and everyone can do it for themselves I guess the world will be also happy and better place if you don't have any sad or angry people around. <laughs> yeah, maybe. There's, I, I think I used to look at things that way a lot more. Uh, and then also I think that there is, there's definitely some things that cannot be solved by dancing or by artistic enjoyment. Yeah, we sure. do have some um, problems that, that require a little bit more than just art. But yes, it's on a day-to-day -day level and in order to control what we can control which is only ourselves definitely we can we can fix our own brains a little bit and heal ourselves with dance definitely mm -hmm. yeah that's for sure another thing that you mentioned that caught my attention uh you said that it was very difficult for you to be focused in school but in mm -hmm. dance uh, and especially if you're talking about discipline in dance or becoming a professional dancer or like really good master dancer, you do need to be focused in your training. So how <laughs> you feel dance kind of captured your attention and uh, uh, let you uh, or give you power to stay focused and it was different compared to let's say education in school. Well, okay, I love that question so much. Thank you for asking. <laughs> this is something I've been thinking about a lot um, in thinking a lot about, okay, so there's a term that's really popular now that everyone seems to understand, neurodivergence. Have you guys, are, mm -hmm. is that English word familiar to you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, you know, there's a lot of different ways to be neurodivergent autism, um, Asperger's or, or such, and uh, another one, ADHD. So this is something I think about a lot because my partner, my boyfriend, has a really severe ADHD, um, and it's interesting to live with him. And then I kind of realized in my small group of friends here in Portland, I think only one does not have ADHD. Everybody else does. <laughs> So Aww. I think maybe I really like uh, neurodivergent people. <laughs> I feel very drawn to these personalities. But in, in spending so much time with this personality type, I started to understand. And uh, my partner also, he thinks that I uh, possibly have a slight ADHD myself just because of the way my brain works. So something that happens for people who are neurodivergent or neuroatypical in some cases with this kind of attention deficit, it's very hard to focus on things that you aren't interested in. <laughs> and for me in school, I was just not very interested in most of what they were teaching us, to be honest. It was like I had some great teachers as a child and some not so great ones. Um, but if I was interested in the subject, 
I would become obsessed with it and I can hyper-focus on something I'm fascinated by, but I cannot focus at all on something that I don't care about. And I think, I think anybody can kind of relate to that. Mm-hmm, you know, I absolutely. think most people, of course, want to, f- yeah, like they, people want to focus on what they love, but for people with, um, at least with ADHD, to my understanding, the hyper-focusing, the ability to, um, really just kind of get lost into details of one kind of thing. Um, You can do it for hours on end. That isn't a problem, but then it's like trying to focus on a lot of things at once or things that aren't, don't feel as important. That can be really confusing. And I relate to that a lot. So I think with dance, also the fact that it really put, it places you inside your body and you start to, breathe and think almost like an animal does with your whole body and your brain starts to spread out through your entire nervous system so you're not so liberal in your head but all the thoughts get to spread their way out through your entire body that's a really great feeling so I don't know I think maybe for me personally it could have been a combination of mildly being neurodivergent in some way and then also just enjoying the feeling of um, living my life more like an animal and less like a cerebral human, if that makes sense. <laughs> I really love to, to feel more like an, like an animal moving through space. Mm. Which animal do you associate yourself with? <laughs> <laughs> All of them at once. <laughs> uh, I no, see. Different ones at different times. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel like I'm, you know, I am a wolf. My dogs definitely believe that I am a dog. <laughs> they don't think I'm a person. They, they treat me like I'm one of them. But no, just like, I think it can shift. I used to enjoy doing a lot of uh, kind of animal-based theater work with students with a few different choreographies where we would embody different animals and try to move with their movement quality. And that can be a lot of fun. But yeah, I guess it's just that feeling of uh, living inside of your, inside of your meat. I guess, like really like feeling from the center of your bones and enjoying feeling every sensation in your body all the time, trying to stay in there. It's it's sometimes easy to try to escape one's body and, and disassociate, I guess, from your flesh. And dance really doesn't allow you to do that. So it's kind of a nice anchor. Mm, yeah, that's definitely one of the... Um fastest and the most straightforward connections to our body (laughs) we cannot really be super disconnected while we are dancing coming back to your dance training i know that in the beginning of your dance journey you had opportunity to study with uh zamara a grand niece of ruth say dennis how did it happen? And I actually got surprised discovering that it was a ballet dance training with her. Like, I didn't know that she was doing ballet dance. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if Ruth was. I think she was kind of doing a sort of more orientalist take on some modern dance, contemporary, and it definitely had an influence on Martha Graham's style. Um, but I think it's more just a coincidence that my teacher happens to be related to Ruth. She is, um, her name is Zamara or her actual name is Sam Marshall. She's a really fabulous woman. We're still good friends. 
and I grew up with her daughter. So I was one of her daughter's friends. And um, Sam was one of the people who started this stage at the festival for Middle Eastern dance and music. So she's kind of like one of the grand matriarchs of the group there that I dance with and perform with. So I met her there. Um, well, actually, I guess I met her through her daughter because she was <laughs> her daughter's mom. And she invited us to start taking classes with her, even though we were really young. And that was my kind of introduction. It was really, really fun to get in there and, you know, get to learn the names of the movement, some of the basic things like how to shimmy and, you know, some of the names that I guess are more like modern Western a adaptations of moves like Maya and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, she, she took a bunch of us little teenagers in and let us all try. And I kind of just became obsessed with it and stuck with it over the years. But yeah, I got to meet her because she lived in my small city and just happened to be there. It was sort of a bit of luck on my, on my part for sure. But if I understand correctly, if I understood correctly, your training, it was, uh, for a long time, like a ballet dance in like traditional like way, actual oriental like ballet dance. How did transition to tribal fusion happen that you are known for so much these days? So yeah, when I started, I would say really the style that I was learning um, in the early days was not so much oriental, but very much this like American cabaret style, you know? So it had a there's a different energy to it. It's not as, uh, I don't know exactly how to describe the difference in an astute way, but it has a different feeling. It does not have so much this Egyptian or, you know, kind of Arab feel to it. It's a little bit more of an American take on it. Okay. So it's a little more showy, um, more tricks, um, and I dare say a different interpretation of the music. So I was learning mostly that style. I did have a couple of workshops with like more traditional, like real oriental feeling teachers. Um, but when I was really young, I think I was a little bit more easily captivated by flashy things and shiny things. So of course I wanted the more uh, exaggerated kind of American. <laughs> Americans love to exaggerate things. I, I was drawn to this because I was a child, you know, but um, later in life, I have come to love Egyptian style, probably the most of all the styles. I love the, I like the nuance. I love the emotional expression of the music. And I love that the music has its own emotional tone, like the macams and the, the way that it informs you of a kind of emotional intelligence inside the music that to me is very magical and it's a more mature quality though I think that that is hard to um, impress on a child really I think sometimes children especially children who are not from the sorry my dogs are barking <laughs> no worries um, I think children who are <laughs> children who are not from uh, Manat or source culture will have a harder time understanding mature emotional nuance in music, of course, because we're children, you know, but yeah. Um, but to find, so the tribal style, oh, how did, I think I found it just through going to belly dance events. Um, I heard the name fat chance a lot and I didn't really understand what that meant. I was, oh, is it just, 
you know, for people who are, I don't know what I thought. I thought it was just for like bigger dancers or something. I'm like, oh, cool. That's great that there's a troupe for like fat positivity. I like it. And, but really what it was, it was a bunch of tattooed ladies and they were kind of post-punk, like punk rockers from the late 80s. And the aesthetic really appealed to me because I also, I was kind of a later punk rocker in like the really early 90s. And all my traveling was like, in this really crusty punk community of people we were all tattooed and kind of dirty and a little bit weird with our fashion and very dark and kind of gothic and so aesthetically um I felt much more comfortable uh with the tribal style really to be honest at the beginning I'm sure it was just a choice of fashion really <laughs> um the cabaret style was very pink and very sparkly uh where I so I always felt like I was kind of in a pretending to be something I was not. It didn't really suit me. So that was my initial um, attraction to tribal was I was like, oh, these, these women aesthetically were more similar. And I liked the qualities of the movements. I liked how it was the posture was very regal. And um, at that point in time, I don't think that anybody was really concerned with um, concepts of cultural appropriation or inappropriate mixing of certain like elements of dress from different cultures uh, with religious implication or anything like that. Like it was just kind of a, everything was a free for all back then. So it didn't seem weird that, you know, we'd be wearing a turban with a bindi with a flamenco skirt. And it was just sort of a, a fun choice to, to dress up and it felt like cosplay really. I think a lot with, especially with the tribal world, it feels very much like cosplay, but yeah, I, I joined, um, ultra gypsy with Jill Parker. And I think really, uh, it's really hard to think about like what the real beginning of tribal fusion was, but I think that Jill was really one of the main innovators in that. I also think about Heather Stant from urban tribal I hope everybody knows about her. She's really amazing and has created a lot of really neat concepts and dance over the years. But um, yeah, there was one performance that we did with Jill's group, um, Ultra Gypsy, which even is interesting. It very much speaks to how much things change over time. Because back in like the year 1999, the gypsy, the word gypsy wasn't considered uh, a negative slur, and now it is. I don't know how people feel about it in Ukraine. Is there any discussion about that word there? Actually, not in Ukraine. I feel it's more discussions in uh, uh, America and maybe Europe, mm -hmm. but in Ukraine, like, first of all, like, it's like in Ukrainian and Russian, a little bit different world, word, uh, yeah, Tsigani. Sure. But here, like, people, yeah, yeah. like, I don't know, like, there is no so there, people don't really think about the word itself. And, like, you know, like, in English language, we switch now, we use more Romani, Romani instead of Gypsy. Yeah. In Russian right. or Ukrainian language, it's kind of still the same. Like, there is a name Romali, but usually people still use, uh, like, Tsigani, like the word that was for ages used. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure, like Tigan or, yeah. So I think that the thing 
word here, in, at least in America, people use it to describe like, oh, I'm a free spirit, or I like to travel in the summertime. I'm a gypsy. And it's like, no, you're not. <laughs> That's not what that word means. And also, it's kind of, it's a negative word. It has a negative association. So um, people have stopped using it here. And I really appreciate that people are willing to change in order to reduce the harm of other people. Um, it doesn't hurt us to stop using the word, you know, like we can do it. It's, it's without a lot of pain. Maybe you make a couple mistakes, but okay. Um, but yeah, back in the day, it wasn't considered a negative word. So the company was called Ultra Gypsy. And uh, we did a performance, I think it was in 2000, year 2000 at Rakasa, where the costumes got changed a little bit. And the movements were definitely different um, than the traditional ET of improv and maybe that was one of the first tribal fusion I don't honestly I don't know I don't know how you measure that I think there were enough people trying to innovate back then that it's hard to pinpoint but definitely Jill and definitely Heather had a major influence on the whole movement of creating this style tribal fusion for sure yeah, I was more even curious about your personal story, how you started with Tribal Fusion, but it's also interesting a sneak peek on the uh, development of the style in general, because it's uh, yeah, sure. very recent, mm -hmm. to be honest, in the history of dance, or history of like belly dance, yeah. about its related styles, like it's very, very fresh and still evolving. Yeah. And at the same time, it changed also a lot. Like, do you feel back when you were starting uh, or defining it, started defining it as tribal fusion. So, okay, it's something new, something different. How did it change to what you see today and uh, uh, you see people performing as tribal fusion, not only in costumes, but in dance itself? <laughs> That's a good... Um, the, the best answer I have to that question is I have no idea. It just happened. Um, so yeah, I guess my involvement with it was that like, so that performance at Rakasa in the year 2000 was considered like, oh, it's so different. I was in that performance. Um, I was there as a company member for a lot of that. Um, so I, I guess I was part of it in a way where it, the, the changes happened so slowly it didn't feel like, bam, here's a new style, but um, God, how did it occur? So <laughs> I feel so old right now. I'm like, oh, <laughs> let me think about it. Like, give grandma a second. Um, so, God, I left Ultra Gypsy and then Rachel Bryce came and basically kind of didn't re exactly replace me, but she came in just as I was leaving. Um, I quit because I just didn't want to perform at that time. I, I wasn't confident in my skills really as a technician, as a, I just, I felt like I had a lot of improving to do before I was spending so much time on stage. You know, when you see yourself in videos and you're like, I suck. And it's not like a self-esteem problem. It's that you really do suck. <laughs> I, I sucked and I needed to hone my skills. So I went and studied with Suhaila for a few years and that really, helped me um, level up uh, as a technician, as a, as a person with good technique. And then after that, uh, superstars happened. But uh, Rachel Bryce and I became friends just kind of separately. We met at a bar at a performance. Neither of us were dancing and we just kind of like hit it off. <laughs> and I met Zoe that night too. 
just we were just friends and having a good time hanging out and you know being young and partying in the bay area having a lovely time of things but um yeah rachel invited me to perform with her small group the indigo uh, which i ended up joining and it felt very casual it wasn't like anyone was trying to you know oh let's let's create a style let's do something really different we were just kind of like let's do something fun for a show let's make a cute costume or you know something but yeah I think that there was very little intention behind um, trying to create something it felt like an evolution and just kind of the personal tastes of a lot of people who were in our community I guess like Melodia had a huge influence on the silhouette of the costume the popularity of like the bell-bottom pants and Love had a huge influence on everyone's aesthetic, the style of, you know, cowrie shells you'd put in your hair. Rachel had a big influence on putting flowers in your hair. There were, honestly, I think it was a lot of dancers kind of just experimenting with what they liked and then going and performing at festivals. And then YouTube kind of happened, right? So we had the internet all of a sudden that was widespread. So when I was super young and learning about belly dance there was no internet so if I wanted to see videos I had to like go to a library and hope to find something really old or like find an old book or something there weren't a lot of examples but with the um, possibility to see so many videos and to get to experience um, dancers different styles and practice along with it I think that a lot of trends started to develop just like any other thing in pop culture and I, honestly, sort of how fusion took over. I don't think that, okay, I used to say this a lot in class, but to me, there's not one style per se that is tribal fusion. To me, it meant ATS mixed with some other kind of dance or some other kind of technique that would make a tribal fusion, but there isn't just one thing that it is. I feel like over time it did homogenize through the festival circuit and through YouTube and through videos and, you know, popular dancers doing something um, and other people emulating that. Of course, it would get sort of pushed into this category because, you know, humans love to name things, right? We love to, we like to identify and categorize. But yeah, I, to me, I can't really think about one thing that really is definitively tribal fusion. I think there's a lot of different ways to interpret that. So that's kind of a long, that, that doesn't really have an ending to it, but yeah. No, 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 that's very interesting. But uh, also like, so would uh, it mean that it's kind of difficult to compare like the changes back then and what's now happening in tribal fusion? Or you would just put like, okay, it's just different interpretations and like mixed with different styles. <laughs> With, I mean, different well, other belly dance styles, or do you see some significant changes still happening because of like time? I don't know, spreading more information, exchanging information. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there's a ton of changes happening um, as far as just skill and technique and just kind of ability. Dancers now are doing crazy things that are so much more impressive than anything any of us like old schoolers ever did. <laughs> and that's undeniable. I think it's just gotten better and better. 
That said, I don't really pay that much attention. I don't watch very much belly dance. It's not something I do in my spare time at all. Um, but when I do see something pop up in my feed, a lot of the times it's Russian and Ukrainian and Kazakh dancers that are like really killing it. Um, I was talking to Zoe about that. She's like, they're just like, cuh, 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 cuh. everybody's so strong and like crazy aggressive with their style. And I love that. I think that's great. Um, but you can't even really compare what was going on back then to what's happening now. It's so much stronger now that, um, yeah, I think everything has just kind of gotten taken to a new level. I just haven't honestly, and this is going to sound bad because it is my industry or my former industry. I'm retired now, but I'm, I wasn't really paying attention enough to what other people were doing to watch the changes. Mm. <laughs> you know, I was kind of focused on my own little world and, you know, my students and choreographies, which are very like, you know, still probably very old school compared to what um, younger dancers are doing now. So I'm not, I'm not the expert on the evolution of it, but um, yeah, it's definitely like everything has elevated so much. Dancers are so much better than we were <laughs> and that's perfect. That's how it should be. Well, the physicality of any activity with time changes, even in sports, like in tennis, I, I'm not the expert, let's say in tennis, but uh, my husband's a big lover, so he sometimes tells oh, yeah. me and compares like what was 10 years ago like that heat was am amazing and unusual today it's like everyone is doing it it's normal <laughs> or like for exactly. i don't know running like it's all and the dance is also physical activity so physicality will change and evolve uh in whichever direction but it will change with time yeah yeah Definitely. It's kind of like trying to compare like Simone Biles to Nadia Comaneci, you know, where it's like the best of the 1970s is not going to be nearly as good as the best of right now. And I think that is like that is an evolution. And if you are a teacher, um, that's a big satisfaction because, you know, like, oh, my students, 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 students are now the ones teaching and they're killing it. And like it, that's I feel like if you're a teacher, that's the goal you want. You want them to be better. You want them to be each generation to outdo the next one because that's how we improve. And yeah, that's, a, that's really cool. I like that. But yeah, I, as far as like where the changes happened, oh God, I have no idea. It's so big now. It's, it's so all over the world and there's like strong dancers in every country you go to. And it's fun to watch. It's very interesting. Um, Yeah, the only thing about it, I wonder, is um, the cultural information. I really hope that in the tribal fusion world, people don't only study that, and because it is very aesthetically based. It's not a it's not a traditional dance from a culture in the Middle East. I feel like it's really important to kind of have both. You know, like sure, dance any aesthetic you want play with any movements any music you like I think that can be really fun if you want to use modern music something unexpected of course like the freedom is there and I love that about the kind of modern fusion world is that that spirit of experimentality is very welcome but at the same time I'm always a little confused if dancers 
only exist in that world and they don't know the names of like basic Arab rhythms, you know what I mean? Or just basic uh, information about source culture and those kinds of dance movements and what they mean and what they feel like. Um, I think it's really important to kind of retrofit your education, I guess, with going back and studying um, the origins of belly dance, really, in order to not completely divorce ourselves, especially in the West and especially in non-Manot um, cultures, just to make sure we're not divorcing the art product from the source culture. Does that make sense? I think it's really important for us to kind of understand where it comes from, even if we're in a very derivative kind of uh, place with fusion, you know, like if we're doing a style that isn't traditional, I hope that dancers would also be interested in studying things that are traditional and that do have like, you know, cultural value that's slightly different, a little bit less modern. Was that the reason why you included uh, studying folklore? Oriental styles in your cross-training program? Because I know that you were in Germany, you kind of created this very comprehensive uh, training uh, program for tribal fusion. And one of the yeah. things that you included there was specifically folkloric or Oriental styles. Was that the reason? Yeah. Like big time, yeah. Um, that was one of the things that I felt really strongly about. And I probably feel more strongly about now um, but even then, I, I was just noticing um, a lot of the dancers that I was working with, and I was teaching a lot. I was teaching all over Europe because I was living in Berlin at the time. So every weekend I would go to a different city. And um, a lot of my students, were they were great dancers, really strong. And I noticed some of them had no knowledge of, particularly of the rhythms of traditional, just normal Arab music. They couldn't tell. Um, you know, a ballad from a Saidi, where the emphasis is, and what kind of movements are done to those rhythms, like Saidi style, or, you know, there's such a different energy between, you know, like an Ayub and uh, certain kinds of trance dance and understanding where those rhythms come from, and what kind of dance you do to a ballad. It's a little earthier and a little bit less sassy than a Saidi. So I just wanted, I wanted dancers to really understand the roots of hey, this is kind of where this all started. We should we should know this, at least. So I was working with uh, Beata and Horacio Cifuentes there. I was already teaching in their studio because they invited me to, and they were being really gracious. I was new in Germany and didn't really know anybody, so they invited me, and that was great. And so I also had uh, Horacio teaching ballet just to have some posture and strong port de bras. Just a lot of belly dancers had never studied classical dance. So it was really fun to kind of have a mix. And then Samantha Emanuel uh, joined also as a teacher. So it was the four of us. And we did it for a couple of years. And then I moved back to the States and it became a little bit difficult to continue. But yeah, was, I like that. I like to, I feel like we should all be kind of cross-trained and cross-educated if we're going to be study, studying dance that's outside of our own cultures. Um, it can be really, really the difference between doing something that is culturally interesting or doing something that's culturally extremely inappropriate. And I think it's important to know where those boundaries are and to really understand why they're there. 
Um, that's something that we lack in America a lot in the in the dance world. We I think Americans are very used to just approaching something with an aesthetic value and then going, oh, I like that. I want that for me. I want to be that, <laughs> which is a weird way to connect with culture. Um, but it, it happens a lot here. And I mean, I've been guilty of it myself. You know, I've been like, oh, shiny bindi. I want to put it on my forehead. I'm not a Hindu person. <laughs> this has not a spiritual significance for me in a way that makes any sense. But of course, I participated in that trend because I thought it was pretty. Um, now I would not. That's not something I would put on my face anymore, even though I loved it for a long time. So I guess it's really just having more education about cultures whose art we are borrowing. The more education you have about that, the better, I think, if, if you're going to participate and in a respectful way. I've always wanted that to be part of what happens in, in fusion dance or in any kind of dance that I'm participating in. I would like to be able to participate in, in a way that is respectful and that isn't uh, creating harm or being offensive by accident, because that's the worst when you think you don't mean you don't mean anything by it. But then you show up and you're like, oh, no, the way I'm using this movement or the, the kind of dance I'm doing to this rhythm, you know, is I, I'm just doing it because I think it's fun and, and someone else is offended. That's a terrible feeling. None of us really want to do that. None of us are trying to create harm through our art. <laughs> but I definitely could see even back then, in some ways, a trajectory of just that happening purely through lack of awareness. So I wanted to try to invite dancers that I was working with to try to um, experience a little more about source culture. That's so true. It's like we don't know what we don't know. And at the same exactly. time, yeah, <laughs> at the same time, if this excitement of, let's say, visual effect is the first point of contact and uh, it encourages for later, like studying and digging and exploring, uh, I guess that's not sure. that bad is the problem if it stays on that level right away and then used and misused in um, unaware ways, in unawarely inappropriate ways. That's the, sure. the, the yeah. biggest problem. Well, yeah, I exactly. kind of want to slightly uh, jump uh, uh, forward i know i'm skipping so much <laughs> so much stuff and yeah, uh, uh i guess I'll just for now going with the flow but since we, you already mentioned that uh you kind of retired from dancing and uh, yeah. uh that may be very surprising for many of our listeners because uh, uh many dancers they dance till long time in their like life and far beyond uh, like your retirement current age like, i mean from dancing <laughs> let's say so why was yeah, that decision yeah. for you like to to retire yeah it's a good question and um there's a there's a whole bunch of different answers but the biggest one is i did it i was on tour on the road away from home for 17 years straight without really without a break. I didn't take a lot of breaks. Um, so it was time for me to do something differently or I was going to lose my ever loving mind. <laughs> That's really kind of what it came down to. I, I burned out a little bit, to be honest. Um, 
but I had a, I mean, okay. So the first, gosh, I started in 2003 with belly dance superstars and traveled with them for maybe almost five years. And then I kind of stopped for a year and then came back to do a few shows with them. And then I took another year away from the shows and then joined Jelena with belly dance evolution, which was a lot of fun. I toured with them for 10 years, but then all of the times that we weren't busy touring the, the big productions, the large shows, um, I was really, really bad at taking breaks. And I discovered that I am a very, very mean boss and I make myself work like crazy um, or I used to anyway. And I, I didn't know that about myself. <laughs> I thought that I would be really good at relaxing and no, I'm terrible at it. And I was many years, I was on the road 315 days out of 365. So really the only days I had off were, you know, sleeping pretty much just sleeping and trying to be home, trying to, you know, have relationships. And it was a very, very, um, exhausting lifestyle. I had a lot of fun and it was a great way to spend my twenties and my thirties, but I kind of turned 40 and realized that I don't, I don't want to do it anymore. And beyond that, I also have some chronic injuries um, in my body that were preventing me from being able to move and dance at the level that I wanted to. I, I reached a point where I couldn't progress anymore because of my spine. And uh, maybe it's a little bit of a kind of an egotistical place to be coming from, but I realized I don't want to be on stage unless I'm at my best unless I can be confident that I'm giving everything that I'm able to give um, at my peak, then I don't really want to do it. <laughs> so I kind of had to make that decision. Am I going to change my movement style and make everything a lot more simple, which I tried for a couple of years, but in the end, it just felt really good not to need to dance anymore, um, to have the choice to do it rather than it really becoming my job, which it did. It, it took a little bit of the joy away from the art when I had to do it, even if I didn't feel like it. Do you know what I mean? When, you're, when your art or your hobby becomes your career, it changes your relationship to it greatly. And I felt that happening. And I didn't want to lose my relationship with dance completely so that was part of my decision to stop relying on it as my primary work and my primary source of income because it kind of, I don't know, it extracted the joy so much that I stopped enjoying it the way that I used to. And I would rather retire than dance without joy. Does that make sense? Absolutely. absolutely. I would not want to, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't want to present something that isn't authentic and I feel like what I was trying to do was to create a palatable art product to give to my students to give to audiences but my heart wasn't vibrating inside of it in the way that it should so that that's how I knew it was time for me to t at least take a break who knows maybe I'll go back and do something again but at this point in time I'm really happy to be a jeweler and to have a new medium of metal smithing but yeah, that's that's the honest answer. I haven't told anybody else that. I'm like, I stopped dancing because I stopped enjoying it. That's the truth. Um, 
That said, though, I really miss my dance friends. Like, I miss being on the road with Jelena and Heather and, you know, everybody. It was definitely a great family feeling to be working with other dancers. But, yeah, for me, I feel super happy. And also, the pandemic and this whole COVID situation, it, it all happened at the same time. So even if I wanted to tour, I couldn't. The timing for me was very lucky that I chose to retire just a couple of months before this whole worldwide shutdown happened. That was very crazy timing, weird coincidence there. I do want to also to talk about your jewelry store, but before <laughs> I have to ask sure. this, you, are, you said that you are, you are mean boss. <laughs> Are you mean just to yourself or <laughs> uh, <laughs> from other people you hear the same? Because in, for instance, in Ballad and Superstars, you were not only dancer, you were tribal director. So I assume you had to coordinate people and maybe a little bit boss them around. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I mean boss I'm just sure. to yourself or in general, you're kind of like a strict boss to work with. <laughs> God, if I'm to be totally honest with you, which I guess I'm just having a really honest day. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably a mean boss to other people too. I think as I as I got older and gained more experience and just became a slightly, you know, wiser human being, I, I think I would definitely manage people differently. We were always under a lot of pressure. So I think I'm, I, I tend to be very direct and not very sweet with communication I definitely like I get along really well in Germany nobody seems to think that I'm unusual there like the that style of communication is very common I think maybe in Russia it's a little bit similar uh, especially in dance you're you 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 have orders and if you're in the class you follow them you just do it um, but I'm sure that I could have been a lot more uh, soft in the way that I spoke to people and directed I was always trying to be quite efficient and get things done on time and this and that. Um, oh, sorry, my dogs are being crazy again. Um, but yeah, I I think I, I, God, I've definitely been meaner to me than anybody else that I've ever <laughs> worked with, for sure. Um, I, it's, I think it's just, uh, I have a lot of thoughts about this. You could call it having a strong work ethic. That's one way to look at it, right? That's a positive spin. or you could also call it having extreme anxiety due to living in a capitalist culture that is in the end stages of its functionality. I think uh, especially a lot of us dancers in superstars, uh, most of us did not grow up in families that had a lot of money. Nobody's rich. Most of us were sort of struggling artists before that. Many of us have like lived in our cars or experienced like, homelessness and uh it's it's an interesting group of us that were there and we were in in the dancing because we loved it not because we ever thought we could make money from it that was not something that seemed like a possibility so I think a lot of us were so surprised and grateful that we were suddenly able to live being just belly dancers um that every opportunity that came along you say yes you just don't say no, because I had this thought in my mind that if I start saying no to opportunities, the opportunities will stop coming. So I kind of got it in my head that I had to do everything. So I did everything and 
some years I would travel to like 45 different countries. And then many years I would also end up in the hospital um, because I didn't know how to maintain my health. And I definitely had some pretty major eating disorders, uh, which I just started talking about publicly as well. I think that we would push ourselves in this way that came from a mentality of scarcity and anxiety rather than, oh, I wish to be the best. At least for me, it was that. I was really almost a future FOMO where I I didn't want to miss out on anything and I didn't want this uh, weird dream life to disappear. So we would just try to do everything. And that's a great way to burn yourself out, you know, (laughs) not understanding how to say no. We have to learn. It, It took me a long time to learn that I could say no and I could create boundaries for myself. And also that nobody else was going to create those boundaries for me. So if I wanted to be healthy, I had to learn how. And (laughs) these seem like really basic things, but for some reason it took me until I was like, you know, 35 to understand that. Coming back to your like recent, let's say, switch in uh, life and activities, um, can you share a little bit, how was that period of transitioning? Because for many dancers, especially like, for instance, you, you spend the whole life dedicated basically to dance. And then suddenly, like, or probably not suddenly, you probably thought about this, uh, like, in advance, like, it was kind of like on your mind. But at the same time, you took Mm -hmm. decision to retire. And now you need to do something different. You need to supplement your income from different sources to figure out things. Mm -hmm. So how was it for you? Like for your jewelry store, was it right away you went into like doing jewelry like and working with jewelries or was it something else? Was it the search? I don't know, applying for regular jobs or anything like that? (laughs) Yeah, it's isn't that a weird thing to think about? Like that transition was really, um, it was super interesting and definitely challenging mentally because I had so many different thoughts about it and I mean growing up of course I think I said this multiple times belly dance was not a career that I thought I could have I'd never expected to make any money from it and that that was okay you know if you made twenty dollars in tips in a night okay that's great you know you're happy about it but um it was a weird thing when I was like okay I really don't want to do this anymore. My body can't really do it at the way that I want. What can I do? And then I go back to thinking about my education and I'm like, okay, I have no real degrees. I have these unfinished degrees in areas I no longer am interested in. So they're not useful to me. (laughs) And then before that, I didn't even go to high school. I technically have an eighth grade education what are my options? (laughs) That was a really scary place to be, um, thinking about work in a more traditional way, I guess, or in a more normal way. It was was an intimidating thing. So my mental process was kind of exactly like it was when I started with dance. I was like, you know what? I know about myself that I'm only capable of doing things that I love to do, um, which sounds kind of spoiled, like a child, you know, I only do what I want to do. What a, what a funny, like immature attitude. So that's one voice in my head is uh, sometimes we have to do things we don't want to do. Right. But I, I just knew it was like, I, I have to love it if I'm going to be successful. 
and it needs to be something I can focus on because the way my brain works, I know, I, I know this about myself. So I really kind of spent some time thinking and a lot of the thinking would happen on airplanes in between gigs because I was still traveling. It's like, what do I love? What do I really, really love? And I was thinking about, well, I love aesthetics and I love, I love decoration. I love jewelry. I'm obsessed with it, really. Um, I had a import business before I started traveling as a dancer where I would travel mostly to like North Africa and to Turkey uh, when I was like 18, 19, 20. And I would go and kind of travel around on foot through Morocco and Tunisia and go buy jewelry, buy old traditional jewelry. And then I would come back and some of it I would sell, a lot of it I kept, <laughs> I still have, but I really loved this. And I wanted to study um, just the ethnography of jewelry. And then I became more interested in contemporary design as well. So I started just kind of really shopping, I guess, looking around at what was here. And I became somehow a designer for a local store that has beautiful stuff um, here in Portland and they have really, really beautiful designs but we weren't doing the hand fabrication I was only drawing the designs and then sending them to a workshop to have the jewelry made and that was fun but it wasn't enough for me I needed to know more because my brain became obsessed and when my brain is obsessed with something it has to know as much as possible so I decided I wanted to learn how to fabricate and Rather than going to school, because I'm not so good at school, I decided to try to learn uh, by working, which is something uh, that works for my style of education much better. I like to learn by doing. I'm a kinetic and visual learner, so I need to touch things in order to understand them. So I was really, honestly, on Instagram, following every jeweler that I found impressive. I was very interested in the kind of old lost wax casting way of doing metal because of the shapes that you can get and the organic textures and all of this stuff. I just really loved that it was um, very sculptural and working with wax was appealing. So I started following a caster here in my city who does production and was producing for a lot of jewelers here that I really admired. And lo and behold, one day they were advertising that they needed an assistant in the shop. And I just applied for the job on Instagram and I went and met them and we liked each other. So I started working in the shop and I um, became the assistant to the main caster and I learned everything that I could about it. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how I started. Instead of going to school, I found someone who was willing to pay me to teach me. <laughs> so that was a really lucky situation. And now that I started my own line and my own uh, company, I use the casting shop that I was working for um, to produce. And they, they're really nice. They let me go and I still have a key. I can go use all the equipment and produce my own things there. So it's a really, really lucky situation especially during this crazy pandemic. So yeah, that was that transition. It, and I know I make it sound easy. There was a lot of emotional stuff around it too. There was a lot of like, um, leaving dance felt like I was um, detaching myself from a huge part of my identity as a person. And that felt like a 
like a tiny death, you know, there's definitely some grief around leaving. But in the end, I was like, if I'm going to grow and if my brain is going to remain flexible, I want to, I need to keep learning. And I don't think dance is where that learning is going to occur. So I, I think it's kind of a quite normal thing, especially for creative people. Uh, when they reach their 40s, these questions start to come and it's like, will I keep doing what I've been doing or am I going to change? Am I going to become someone new and try different things? Um, so for me, it was transitioning to a new kind of art, something that wasn't just me and my body representing my creativity. I love creating an object that it has nothing to do with me and that I can sit next to and look at and be like, ah, oh, something else. It's, it's not like I'm my art. It's, it's a whole other kind of satisfaction. Well, those kind of questions can occur at any age. Like we are going through different stages in our life and sometimes we do need a, a change, a switch of like direction where yeah. we go. So thank you so much for sharing uh, your story and your experience. But yeah. also please share where can people find those jewelers? Because I saw and the pieces are gorgeous. The designs are very gorgeous. Oh, so I do want uh, our listeners to know where they can check uh, and see your uh, jewelry um, designs. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so my company is called Gift Horse Gems, and I named it that. It's, a, it's from a kind of an idiom. Have you heard that, don't look a gift horse in the mouth? It's silly. It's a, it's a funny thing, but it's just sort of a, a funny thing. I just like the idea of a gift horse because um, I love horses, and I always really thought the word gift was funny uh, from living in Germany. In German, the word gift means poison. <laughs> so, like... I guess in, in German, it would be giftiges Pferd. That would be gift. Giftiges Pferd would be poisonous horse. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just thought it was a funny thing. I, I loved that. So gifthorsegems.com. And um, it's just spelled G-I-F-T-H-O-R-S-E-G-E-M-S.com. Or you can look at me on Instagram there too. I have it linked to my Sharon Kihara account. So if you just go to my Instagram, you'll find Gift Horse in the bio there, and you can check out all the jewelry. And I'm about to do a massive collection drop. I've got a lot of new pieces that I'll be adding to the site by next week. So getting ready for holidays and stuff like that. It's been really fun to um, have a creative outlet that I can do in my home by myself, <laughs> while we're all kind of still staying home, at least in my city, we're still uh, spending a lot of time indoors because of COVID. So yeah, yeah, thanks. It's been so much fun. I'm so happy that I have something to do with my hands and my brain. I'm very, very happy to hear it. Very uh, glad, uh, glad mm -hmm. for you. Speaking of Instagram, one of your uh, latest uh, uh, posts, you published a photo or from uh, yourself, younger, like it's 32 years old, and the captions were, "I wish I could tell this 32-year-old a few things." Would you mind sharing with us? <laughs> yeah. What would you tell yourself at 32 if you could uh, kind of like jump back in time and meet her and share some something with her? <laughs> uh, 
honestly, <laughs> that's the theme. Honestly, I don't even care anymore. I'll just tell you all the things. Um, I would tell myself at 32 that I need to eat more food. I need to eat food. I had a pretty terrible relationship with food and I was experiencing um, both anorexia and bulimia at the same time and making myself extremely sick a lot. Um, so I did, I think I did a post on just Facebook recently where I talked about it for the first time because it became apparent to me that it's a little bit important uh, to be honest about my body, I guess, in that time, I was really thin and um, working really hard to stay marketable and relevant um, in the dance world because I wanted to keep working. And I noticed that really only the skinny dancers were getting hired. So I made myself that. Um, so that created some really unhealthy and destructive patterns for me. And also, I really hate to think that I was demonstrating to younger dancers, especially that this is the ideal physique, you need to have your ribs showing, you need to have all of your muscles on display. Uh, when in actuality, that is just a really um, fat phobic, <laughs> kind of a mainstream view um, that comes from, in my opinion, a very misogynistic place and also a white supremacist place. There's a lot about bodies that is judged, especially in women. We're so judged by our physiques, and I definitely fell prey to that. That's one of the things that I was thinking about when I posted that. And also, God, I would have told that girl, like, you don't need to get married right now. You don't, <laughs> you don't need to work quite so hard, um, and you definitely don't need to put up with a lot of what you are um, putting up with. So, <laughs> yeah, that's what that post was about, but really definitely a lot of it was like treat yourself better be a little bit healthier like don't don't be afraid to like you know eat a sandwich <laughs> well thank you so much for um, such an interesting and honest uh, conversation and uh, like uh, all the replies were just like mind-blowing and uh, so so exciting and i really want to to thank you for taking time and uh Uh, sharing uh, your experience your memories your wisdoms now with uh, other like dancers who are going through maybe something similar or they wish to have those things or maybe i'm pretty sure some of our listeners consider you as their hero and they want to follow like your steps your career because you did so much and uh, we skipped so many things we just like kind of like went through some highlights <laughs> or not even highlights just like yeah. randomly like this chapter this chapter chapter this chapter so thank you so much mm -hmm. for such an honest and uh, open uh, conversation and really really enjoyed it <laughs> thank you I, i'm honored and happy to talk to you about all this stuff <laughs> well and before i let you go i just want to uh summarize with our final traditional question we have one question which i ask every single <laughs> guest at the end of interview regardless okay. of what we talked about and uh, i don't know if i should <laughs> just ask it or modify slightly like for 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 you but the question is what mm -hmm. makes you fall in love with ballet dance that you keep doing it for so many years or we can modify maybe what 
made you fall in love <laughs> it was belly dance that you did uh, do it for so many years belly dance or tribal fusion like basically like your dance style what was that thing for you god i think what well, what initially made me fall in love with it was seeing a dance form that had a sense almost a visual synesthesia to it i had never experienced dance that looked so much like the music sounded it was this very almost psychedelic experience of like this symbiotic relationship between musician and dancer of course because i was watching aziza <laughs> and she is so good at that the musical interpretation blew my mind because when you can do a dance that looks exactly like it sounds there's a for me a big satisfaction there and um, that's what really caused me to fall in love with the relationship between music and dance and honestly i do think that that's what kept me there for so long but what really kept me going and wanting to continue even when i was sort of starting to feel myself burn out um was the community that i had around me my my particular friends in dance were just i've met some really wonderful people through this who are still in my life even if i'm not performing um we talk all the time i i have some students even that just became good friends and we we talk regularly and i think it's the um the community aspect and the fact that it's like badass mostly it's like badass women and queer people <laughs> that tends to be who's in my community um but i really love i love the people that i've met so i would say that the relationships the the relational parts of it relationship between music and dance relationships between people i think that's what makes me love anything really is uh having a having a relational uh experience having like having those that closeness and that interconnectedness feels really nice and that's it for today guys but before you go away don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends and if you post it on social media please tag me and our guest because we love seeing who is listening to the podcast thanks for being with us and i'll see you next week same time same place